Hello, my name is Dr. Katherine Kiefer Newman, and this is my podcast, Lost in the Rabbit Hole, The Dark Side of Folktales. I have a doctorate in mythological studies and a master of fine arts and creative writing, but long before any of that, I've loved folktales. Folktales, fairy tales, myths, legends, urban legends, all things story. And this is a podcast about some of the lesser known things, the hidden things, the things found deep inside of tales that we perhaps unknowingly give over to our children. But these stories, they never let us fully go. They haunt the corners of our dreams, stalk us in our fantasies. We can't shake them loose. And the rabbit hole, it's just an ordinary thing. We pay no mind to it, sitting out there in the corner of the garden or the middle of a field, or maybe tucked into the roots of a tall tree. We pay no mind to it at all. That is, until we fall in. Join me as I lose myself in this unknown space, this place, this rabbit hole, and rediscover so many of the things left behind. But before we begin, I want to give a warning. I will be talking about the grotesque, foul, horrific things left out of children's versions of folktales. There is violence in these stories and broken societal taboos. If you are at all vulnerable to such information, please turn back. Welcome to episode three of Lost in the Rabbit Hole. This episode is called Getting Lost, Being Found. Now, the thing about episode three is that it's actually broken into two parts. Part one is a little bit of background in the beginning of the tale. Part two, finishing up the background, finishing up the tale. The reason I decided to break it into two parts, though, was partly because... This subject, this story, these tale types, abandoned children tale types, which is what this is about, they're enormous. I mean, there's so many of them. There's so many variants, and they actually intersect with so many other types of tales that it proved difficult <laughs> to limit what uh, what all I was going to cover. But also, it's that time of the year, and winter time. And this tale especially just really seemed like it needed more space. So thank you for joining me. And we're going to talk about getting lost and being found. Once upon a time is how these stories always start. And in this one, it's wintertime. And that brings a soft quiet to the forest. The birds are tucked into their nests the little animals asleep in their dens. The forest is still, waiting and wondering what will come next. Long, long ago, beside one such winter forest, there lived a poor woodcutter and his wife and their two children, a little boy and a little girl. They lived quite humbly in a house made of wattle and daub, all snug together under their thatch roof. There was a little coop around back for the chickens, and the woodcutter's wife kept a vegetable garden full of lush, ripe tomatoes in the summer and squash in the fall. 
the house was perfectly placed between two aspen sentries, each guarding a side. But winter can be particularly difficult for those who live so close to the land. And in the time of our tale, it was even worse. All over Europe, people struggled because of horrific famine, brought on first by widespread droughts and then later by other extreme weather. This was just after the medieval warm period, the late 1200s, which was a time in European history of population explosions across the continent. With more people, there were more hands to make things and do things, and so a burgeoning merchant class began. But there were also more mouths to feed, taxing an already struggling agricultural industry. At first, the warmer days and months meant longer growing periods, which in turn allowed for more crops. But during the cold months, the weather was so harsh that crop yields were low. Now, it seemed like the extended growing periods would last forever, and it seemed like there was more and more food being grown. But that actually wasn't the case. It rained constantly throughout the summer and autumn of 1314, and then through most of 1315 and 1316. Mean little houses during the good years couldn't keep out the worst of the weather during these bad years. The fields were perpetually soaked, crops rotted right in the ground, harvests failed, and livestock drowned. Animal feed became scarce, and the cost of food and other basic needs quickly moved out of people's ability to pay. The wealthy went through their food stores, and then even they felt the squeeze. Drought animals were slaughtered. Pets were rounded up for food. Carriage horses were eaten, until finally all that was left were vermin, and the people ate those too. Even the seed grain was consumed, which meant there could be no future crops. This era came to be called the Great European Famine, which over the next few years, is thought to have claimed something like 5% or more of the British population, and it was even worse in mainland Europe. Like all of the people across Europe at this time, our poor woodcutter and his family struggled to get paid for work, where once he had commissions to chop wood for new houses going up, for the local blacksmith, the tanner, the baker, even odd jobs for neighbors, people who were living in a world that they felt was prospering. Fairly quickly, all of the commissions stopped. As the long days turned to weeks and then months, our little family had less and less to eat, and then they had almost none. It wasn't just the weather causing so much tragedy, though. There was rampant crime as those with nothing took from those with almost nothing. Diseases spread first among the poor in the towns and villages, but then even out into the rural and mountain areas. Other illnesses, too, took lives at an increased rate as bodies became fragile with no resistance to fight off even the smallest infection. The people all over the continent begged their governments to help, to offer some kind of aid, but the kings and other rulers said, sometimes these things just happen. It is what it is. This is the landscape that our narrative falls into. One evening, as the woodcutter and his wife sat before their now meager fire, he worried at their problems. He picked at them, pulling out first this one and then that one. Each would then be nubbed and frizzled until it was a mass of new problems. 
into this mess, his wife asked, what is to become of us? He had no answer for her. She asked, how can we feed our children when we have nothing for ourselves? He had no answer for her. With a heavy sigh, his wife whispered, I think I know what we have to do. He looked at her, and there was a long pause, and then she continued, Early tomorrow morning, you must take the children out into the thickest part of the woods. Make them a fire, and give each of them a little piece of bread. But then, leave them by themselves, and tell them you're going off to work. Then you'll come home, but they won't be able to find their way here. May God have mercy on them. Now, the woodcutter was a tender soul. This hurt his heart. He said, there must be another way. But as long as they sat before that fire, the embers growing paler and paler, the hearth cooling, neither of them could come up with any other solution. The last thing he whispered to her was, won't wild animals tear them to pieces? And her answer was, that would be quicker than the slow death that we all face in our once happy home. The children could stay here and starve to death. He knew it, and she knew it. Or they could take their chances out in the woods. One of the criticisms of fairy tales and folk tales is that they often depict women in this kind of callous, utilitarian way, And many of the variants of this tale have a mother or stepmother who makes the choice to abandon her own children. One of my favorite theorists, Jack Zipes, sees this tale as an acknowledgement of the symbolic order of the patriarchal home. The patriarchal home functions as a haven from the dangerous outside world threatening the children, but at the same time completely demeans the adult female characters. In some of the tale variants, the mother or stepmother dies just after the children kill the witch. This provides a link between the two women, which acts as a metaphor for all women's inner callous nature. This is sometimes a troubling concept for contemporary audiences, as you might imagine. But the thing is that women and men tended to lead separate lives even after they were married. The woman's job in the home was to take charge of the children and also the household business. If there was no more food to be gotten, then the decision of what to do about the children would be hers. Interestingly, in several of the later versions, it's the father who makes the decision of what to do about the children and the mother who weeps for the loss of them. And in some variants, there's no mother at all. But a tragic fact is that within this time period, mothers and fathers did abandon their children. Like the crime, disease, famine, and drought, child abandonment became widespread. Now, in our tale, these two children, the little brother and the little sister, they're not simpletons. They know that things are dire for their family, and they know that their parents are distraught. That night, as their parents decide to leave them in the woods, the children hear the plan, and they make a plan of their own. Gretel climbs out the little window in their sleeping loft and gathers up two pockets full of tiny white pebbles. 
In the morning, Gretel puts the pebbles into her apron pockets. And as the woodcutter leads his children deep into the woods, Gretel drops the pebbles one by one. By midday, the woodcutter stops at a stream with a scrawny bush lolling over the running water. He decides to set a fire there, and then he hands each of the children a hard bread roll. Pick your fill of berries, children, and keep yourselves busy with your bread. I'll just be over on the other side of that copse of trees cutting wood for the tanner. When the fire goes out, come and find me, and we shall all return home together. The children noted that their father had no cart for hauling the chopped wood, nor had he brought an axe, a saw, or even a hatchet. But they didn't argue or quibble. They went to the stream and began picking and eating the scant berries. They ate all of them and then sat by the fire with their bread. When the fire had died, Gretel led Hansel back home, following the path of pebbles she had made. Seeing the children return, the woodcutter cried with joy. But his wife had hardened her heart. There was only enough bread for two that night, and little more the next day. She gave the children the last two rolls and fed her husband some gristle and a moldy carrot. She ate nothing and wept as she cleaned the sink. Later, the woodcutter and his wife sat before the night fire with the children tucked into their loft above, and she leaned in and whispered to him, Husband, you must take them back into the woods. This time, deeper. I've saved some dried venison and a bit of porridge. Give them this food and set a camp. Tell them that you will overnight in the woods and return home in the morning. Then, when they sleep, you come back alone. His answer was to openly weep, but even though he was no longer willing to leave the children in the woods, he didn't know what else to do. She pointed at the empty shells and out the window at the now-dead vegetable garden. She said, there is no food for us, let alone children. You must leave them to their fates. Maybe I can scrape together one more meal for you and me. She knew that the woodcutter and she would soon face their own fate. But she hoped that the children would somehow last in the woods. She hoped they would find mushrooms, maybe some seeds or berries on the ground. She hoped this. Gretel was so tired from the long walk and the worry of enacting her plan, though, that she slept through her parents' conversation and did not hear it. She was startled in the morning to learn that they were going back into the deep of the woods. This time it was Hansel who had cleverly saved his bit of roll from last night's dinner. As they walked, their father made many turns. He doubled back on the path several times and crossed a stream and then crossed another one. It was well after midday when he made a camp for them. He set the fire and gave the children the scraps of food his wife had saved for this. He stared long into the campfire and finally said, We will sleep here tonight, my children. In the morning I will cut the wood that the tanner has ordered from me. You will clear up camp, and when I'm done with my work, we shall all return home together. The children knew this was a lie. They knew that their father planned to leave that night while they slept. They let him go, and then they set out after him, 
looking for the bits of bread Hansel had dropped. Unfortunately, it was very dark, and the bread had probably all been eaten by hungry woodland creatures. Quickly, the children realized they were lost. Jack Zipes points out that this theme of abandoned children is so common in the European oral and literary tradition, maybe because of a lack of birth control. He suggests maybe it's also because of a lack of government oversight to help with living and working conditions, which were pretty atrocious. It might also have been a lack of any kind of aid. Uh, All of that was done through private charities, and it was really pretty much hit and miss. European medievals did leave unwanted children in front of churches or out in the elements, and sometimes the children would become the prey of animals in the forest. Life then was certainly fraught. People were left to look after their own needs, and if they couldn't, they were expected to quietly go away and die. While I think Jack Zipes' reasons are sound and his theories are definitely supported by historical data, there are even darker reasons found in letters and journals and, of course, other folk tales. There are stories of children left out in the wild because they were born of incest or because they had been physically and sexually abused, and because of that, were seen as cursed. Uh, If a child had an unusual birthmark or a pattern of moles or freckles or any other kind of birth defect, they were thought ill-omened. There are many Celtic fae traditions where children are thought to have been half or fully supernatural. Old Norse tales of changelings can still be found. Worse were those Poor children thought to be touched by the devil, somehow half-demon offspring waiting to profane the family. Sacred and ancient myths, too, carry tales of prophecies that a child will grow up to murder or replace one or the other parent. Or it might be that the child was born female. In some cultures, just being born female is the only sin that needs to exist. We can see some of this in a later version of our tale called Jan and Hanna. Now, this was published in 1863, and it came out of Poland. In this version, the father has too many children, and he tells his two youngest to come with him into the forest. Then he takes a breadboard and a rolling pin, and without the children seeing, he hangs them against a tree. He says, children, just go and pick berries. You can pick berries as long as you hear me chopping wood. The wind blows the breadboard and the rolling pin against each other, and the children keep picking berries. They pick so many that their little buckets are full. The chopping continues, and so they start eating the berries. When it grows dark between the trees, little Jan and little Hannah become worried, and so they go looking for their father. They come to the place where the breadboard and the rolling pin are hanging, But there's no sign of their father. Crying and calling for him, they run deeper and deeper into the forest until they spy old Vera's little house, and it's made all of gingerbread. Because of the famine on top of everything else, historical records show that families didn't just abandon their children. There was rampant infanticide and even cannibalism. Jan and Hannah are starving. And so they crumble off little pieces of old Vera's house and shove it into their mouth. 
She hears them and then catches them up in a net like little fishes. She hauls them in, locking them into a cage that she has set up just for this purpose. She says, I will fatten you up and then feast on you. Well, time passes with them first tricking her into feeding them more and more food. And then when she decides to just go ahead and cook them, they trick her into her own oven. In this version, in Jan and Hannah, the children live happily ever after, and they claim her house as their own. One fun historical note is that in this time, conversations about cannibalism weren't all on how taboo and horrific it is. There are legal papers and letters and journals that note that cannibalism was sometimes thought of as a means of survival, albeit a desperate choice. There were few legal punishments brought forth when a husband was found to have eaten his wife uh, or a neighbor to have eaten the family next door. There were exceptions to this, though. Prisons were places, for example, where the dead were fed to the living to keep the prisoners alive. When word got out, the prisons were forced to stop. But before this era of horrors was over, stories would circulate that graves were disturbed, the starving pulling up newly buried corpses and feasting on the soft tissue, gnawing on intact bones. Even worse, grave robbers would sell the harvested internal organs to food vendors for meat pies. The vendors were usually jailed, sometimes just fined, sometimes they were run out of town, but often they would go to another town and set up their business again. (laughs) According to Iona and Peter Opie, the version of the tale that we most recognize was first published in 1812 by Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm as little brother and little sister. In later versions, the Grimms would change the mother into a stepmother, and they would name the children Hansel and Gretel. The Opies found that many of these sorts of Hansel and Gretel tales came from the Baltic region of Europe, which was where the Great Famine raged the most fiercely. The Grimms' version seems to focus more on the woodcutter, which is fascinating when the tale's title is always something to do with the children. Their version begins... Hard by a great forest dwelt a poor woodcutter with his wife and his two children. The boy was called Hansel and the girl Gretel. He had little to bite and to break, and once, when great dearth fell on the land, he could no longer procure even daily bread. Whichever version you find yourself with, there are usually children outwitting monsters, generally referred to as ogres. The monsters can be old crones, evil witches, trolls, or some other awful creature. In these types of tales, the children will trick the ogre into killing itself, usually in its own oven or trap. That last bit there, that they trick the monster into its own trap, is very, very important. Remember that. We'll be coming back to it. Thank you for joining me on this little trek of two parts. This was part one of getting lost and being found. These are abandoned children tales, better known as Hansel and Gretel stories. And I really appreciate that you joined me for part one, but don't forget to check out part two. It is available now.
Lost in the Rabbit Hole, The Dark Side of Folktales. Thank you so much for listening. In future episodes, I will explore many other dark, shadowy corners of some of our favorite tales. So please, if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing. You can also find Lost in the Rabbit Hole on Twitter, on Instagram, or you can visit my webpage at catkeifernewman.org, where I will have updates on all projects that I'm working on. I am Dr. Katherine Kiefer Newman, and this was Lost in the Rabbit Hole.